0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and go to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. For those of you that are doing the Bible reading plan uh, that we're doing this year as a church, this was, I believe, from Monday this past week, Romans chapter 11. Let me just read the first six verses. It's primarily what we'll be looking at, and then I'll pray again and we'll get into it. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, I ask then... Has God rejected his people? And he's speaking of Israel here, um, and I'll explain this more after a little bit. He says, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Let's pray one more time. Father, please help this morning. I pray for my own heart and the heart of everyone here that you would give us a posture of humility and submission in regards to your word pray also, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying this morning. I pray for a pure heart, Lord, also in myself this morning, and I pray also for a clear mind that would be able to explain your word um, for what it says. We love you, and we need you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are some of the, what I probably call the thorniest chapters in all of the Bible. And what I mean by thorniest is is that man, non-Christians, and Christians alike, we have a hard time swallowing this. Because it uses... A lot of words that are very naturally offensive to our natural senses it uses words like election and predestination and chosen and uh, hardening and uh, let let me just read you from Romans chapter 9 this isn't where we're going to be but I'll just give you a little snippet Romans chapter 9 verse 18 so then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Verse 20, here's his answer. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? That's his, that's, that's, his, that's, his, that's his answer in response to the question. It's a legitimate question. Well, wh- why does he still blame it? Who can resist his will? who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And man, it, not only is it just offensive to natural man, but it's especially offensive to natural man. American men and women because our freedom and our ultimate our will being ultimate we think and um, our self autonomy I mean it is just it is the air that we breathe but the Bible does not hold back from reminding us that there is only one being in all of the universe that is sovereign and for god to be sovereign means that you and i and every human being that has ever existed is not and it we don't like that it rubs us it's like you know we got something crawling on us and we just got to itch and we got to twitch a little bit and uh, so last week I started off my sermon, this is two weeks in a row, last week I started off my sermon by telling you that I think that I was going to, I was pretty sure that I was going to try to offend you uh, last week, but so many of you were encouraged by last week's, week's, week's message, and so I thought I'd go for round two and see if I can do a better job this week of offending you. Of course, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just kidding, but um, about trying to offend you, although I'm not kidding about that it, 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 naturally, it naturally is. Um. And so one of the things about weighty passages of the scripture this past week, if I can just share a little bit of the tension that I felt this past week as we were reading this and as a pastor, there's, I had some conflict within me because um, it, there's a sense in which many of the things that are talked about in Romans nine, ten, 10, uh, and 11, um, they, they need to be talked about with clarity and they need to be talked about Carefully and not flippantly, and with great nuance and with great specificity. Um, and so it's a little bit hard sometimes to just kind of parachute in to the middle of it. And again, what we're doing this year, for those of you that don't know at Mercy Hill, we're just reading through the New Testament together on a Bible reading plan, one chapter a day, five days a week, gets us through the entire New Testament in a year. And so I'm just preaching on one of those passages, one of those chapters, week by week. Um, And so it's a little bit difficult to parachute in. However, on the other hand, um, I didn't want to skip over this. And I didn't want to skip over it for a couple reasons. And I just want to kind of share my heart, especially for those of you that call Mercy Hill home and as one of your pastors here uh, at the church. Um, And the first reason is just simply that I I don't, like like this book is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. And it is supernatural uh, in its working and it is glorious in its essence and in its nature. And as we gaze into it, we see the nature and character of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ rises from its pages and it changes us. And the Bible says that we are changed from glory to glory to ever-increasing glory as we behold his glory. And I would argue mainly, primarily from from this book. Secondly, I don't, um, in shepherding you, I am not shepherding you well if I ever tell you to shrink back from any portion of scripture, okay? And if anybody ever tells you to shrink back from any portion of scripture or says things like, well, you know, just, just, just remember John 3, 16. God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, and that, Listen, that verse is glorious. That verse is awesome. That verse is just unbelievably mag- magnificent. But I want to argue that the reason that we tend to have the mamsy-pamsy, lukewarm American Christianity that we do where we have very few people that are willing to follow Jesus, to take up their cross and to follow him, and to lay down their lives for the sake of the mission and for his kingdom is exactly because of that type of thinking and that type of teaching. That be Because we've not pressed into what the scriptures say and wrestled with this sovereign, almighty God who at times says things that are offensive to us, Okay? And I don't think that I'm shepherding you well if I ever uh, even imply that there's certain passages of scripture that just because they're difficult or there's some weighty things in them that that we should shrink back from them, okay? I'll never tell you that, and don't ever think that. You have to wrestle with this book for yourself, every one of you, if you're a disciple of Christ. It's what God calls you to. It's part of following him, and there's no way, and there's no way around it. The third reason is that ultimately, All of Scripture, whether it's kind of easy to understand or whether it's difficult to understand, whether there's things that are not offensive to us or things that are offensive to us, all Scripture is ultimately about the nature and the character of God, okay? That's what it's ultimately about. And this text this morning, even though it's a little bit thorny, is no different It is ultimately about the nature and the character of God. And if we do not embrace all that the scripture says about who God is, then we will not understand him as he is. And if we don't understand him and embrace him as he is, then we will not worship him as he deserves. Does that make sense? We don't get to make a golden calf in our image, folks. We take him as he is, and I'm telling you, as he is, is perfect. And it is glorious. And we do not get to define what perfection is. We do not get to define what justice is. We do not get to define what goodness, what grace, what mercy is. We look to him for our definition of it. And we wrestle through it uh, in the scriptures. And so, what I want to do this morning uh, is just kind of give a brief overview of Romans 9, 10, and 11, and then settle into the text that I read in chapter 11, uh, verses, verses one through six and again there's a lot of big weighty theological issues again not just the fact not just the fact that uh, he uses some big words of election and predestination and hardening and choosing and all these different and all these different things but also because he's primarily speaking of the nation of Israel and I would say that for most of us all of us in our lifetime in our generation in which we live there's been no hotter world political topic right than the nation of Israel in the Middle East is that right? And so again, it's always just been—at least in my entire life—it's pretty much always kind of been a, been a powder keg, and you're kind of waiting to see to see what happens. And again, I'm not saying that Romans nine, ten, and eleven talks specifically about uh, what exactly is going to happen, uh, you know, day by day in the news headlines. But it does talk about ultimately how God is going to bring all things to an end, and how He is going to work all things together uh, for good, no matter what kings and rulers and presidents and things do. And so there's a lot of weight here. That's all I'm trying to say. There's a lot of weight here. And so let's look at it uh, carefully together. And then I'm just going to walk through and try to explain what he's saying in the context about Israel. But then from there, I also want to pull out some very, 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 very glorious truths about the nature and character of God uh, that deal very specifically with our lives and that I believe are able to give us uh, great hope and encouragement this morning. But so Romans chapter 9, if I had to outline it this way, and this is, um, I think this is from Warren Wiersbe. I like the way he kind of outlines this. He says, Romans chapter 9 speaks of Israel's past election. Romans chapter 10 speaks of Israel's present rejection. And Romans chapter 11 speaks of Israel's future restoration. Okay, so chapter 9, their election. Chapter 10, their rejection of the Messiah And then, chapter eleven, their future restoration—that God is not done with them—and that's what we read about in chapter eleven, in those first six verses. And so, let's look at them again. I'm just going to walk through and explain Paul's Paul's argument here. Okay. And again, the reason this matters, okay, the reason this matters so much is because back in Romans chapter eight, again, this word this word election that that if you have believed in Jesus Christ this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Here's how the Bible talks. And again, we might not like the way the Bible talks, but this is how the Bible talks over and over and over and over again. Not just in these chapters, but all over the place. Is that if you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, then that's because God chose you. God chose you. He elected you. And again, all Christians, we love Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is like the thing that we put on, you know, pictures on our walls with pretty little, you know, mountains in the background or deers drinking from a stream or, you know, we put it on our coffee mug or whatever. Well, let me read part of Romans chapter 8 to you. He says, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Yes! Love that verse. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also... Along with him, graciously give us all things. But verse 33, and I get, here's why, and that, that's good. Like, this is awesome. Okay, but listen, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Against his elect. Those that he's chosen. That's what that means. It is God who justifies For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now remember, throughout the book of Romans, Paul is, is anticipating arguments that people will have, and I believe there are arguments that Paul himself has had, and he's asking those questions, and then he's going through and he's answering them. And so back in that passage, again, in the middle of all the love and all that, one of the things that's thrown in there is that the reason that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from God's love is because he's elected us, he's chosen us. If you have believed in him, you are one of the chosen. How do you know if you're chosen? Believe in him. Trust him. That's it. Trust him. But then the question would come up. Well, Paul, you're saying that nothing can separate us from his love, and yeah, this is you know, great that he's, he's chosen us and we're, and we're secure in him. But Paul, what about Israel? What about Israel? They were your people. You chose them. And they killed your son. Again, not just them. I mean, Pilate was involved. The Romans were involved. Jesus died for the whole world. And so this question would come up as to God's faithfulness, and if you'll look just briefly at Romans chapter 9, um, over in verse 6, Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. His point here is that he's going, this argument that he's going to make is that, is that it may seem like God's word failed to Israel, but it hasn't. It has not. He's still at work. And again, the primary argument, yes, he's using Israel as the, as the example because that's the question that people would have as to whether or not he abandoned those, those people. But he says, no, it hasn't. God's word has not failed. And so what you have then is this argument, again, where Paul's explaining about Israel's election, their rejection, but also their future restoration and how God is going to bring all things together uh, for good. And it has direct implications for us because if, Roman, if he doesn't explain Romans 9, 10, and 11, then we don't get Romans 8. Does that make sense? You following me? Okay, so now, Romans 11, back where we were, let me just walk through it and answer these questions. Paul's first answer to the question, has God rejected Israel? He says, verse 1 of chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? It's a rhetorical question. What is Paul's emphatic answer? By no means. Absolutely not, he says. Here's his first argument. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says God has not rejected his people, although it looks like maybe in mass a lot of them have rejected him, saying God's not done with them, and I'm proof of that, that I'm an Israelite and God saved me. And can I just ask you this, how did God save Paul? Remember the story? We read about this just a couple weeks ago. For those of you that are reading along in Acts chapter nine, Paul is a persecutor of the church. He is there giving consent to the stoning, to the murder of Stephen, the first martyr, because he testified of Christ. And people, it says that they laid their coats at the feet of Saul, and he was giving approval to their death, as one to his death, as one of their leaders. And he is on his way to arrest more Christians, and God confronts him god saves him the sovereign god of the universe laid hold of his heart even though he was not seeking him and he made him his and i would argue that for every one of you here this morning that knows jesus christ as your savior while i admit that there's probably nobody here that had a damascus road experience in the sense that you literally saw jesus face to face were blinded for a couple days and talk directly to him, verbally, as Paul did, I would argue that you were just as sinful as Paul was, and that it was God taking the initiative to lay hold of your heart through the preaching of the gospel that saved you. That is how salvation happens. Salvation belongs to God. He saves you. You do not save yourself. So Paul says, first of all, no, God's not rejected his people. It may seem that way in mass, but he saved me. I'm an Israelite. Then he moves into verse (coughs) 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, did he? Yeah, I've talked about this before. I talked about this this past year. We were going through 1 Peter, and Peter uses this term foreknowledge. We all, man always wants to insert in here. We always want to define foreknowledge as, well, God looked down through the corridors of time, and he saw those that were going to choose him, and so then he just chose them because they already chose him, and that's what foreknowledge is. The problem is nowhere does the Bible say that. Nowhere. That is, again, man inserting their definition of a biblical word rather than getting their definition of the biblical word from the Bible. Foreknowledge in the Bible is not just an idea of like mental assent or knowledge or information. It's not just like, like how we know math, how we know what two plus two is. It's the idea of relationship. It's the idea of Adam knowing his wife. Um, in, in, in Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you're like, why are you going to Amos? Because Amos is one of the most direct contexts to help understand what knowledge and what foreknowledge is. Because again, in Amos, he's talking specifically to the nation of Israel. And listen how he talks. He says, "Here's this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He says, you alone have I known. You alone have I known from all the families of the earth. Now what does that mean? Did God God not know about any of the other families or any any of the other tribes or any of the other nations? No, he knew of them. That's not what he's talking about. He's like, you alone have I loved. You alone have I known intimately you alone have I initiated relationship with. And so in verse 2, God says, has God rejected his people whom he foreknew or whom he foreloved, whom he he foreordained a relationship with? No. And then Paul's going to give another biblical example of how God has not rejected Israel and never rejects his people, um, those that are in Christ. He says, "Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah?" So he's going to give another biblical example. This is from uh, uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter uh, nineteen, seventeen through nineteen, where Elijah had this pro- showdown with the prophets of Baal. And he says, "How Elijah, how he pe- appeals to God against Israel." And now, here, here's what had happened, just very briefly, is that Elijah had had this showdown um, on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Man, you guys, I, like this is a classic kind of Sunday school story is that Elijah, you know, the, the nation is very wicked. Ahab and Jezebel, okay, if you have a kid, he's a son, you probably didn't name him Ahab. If you had a girl, you probably didn't name her Jezebel, okay, um, because those are not good people in the Bible. They're kind of villains. Some of the most, w- w- one of the most wicked king and queens that Israel has ever seen. And they have, they've set up all these false prophets um, worshiping Baal um, and uh, this, this false god. And, but Elijah has remained faithful. And so Elijah has this big showdown with him on Mount Carmel and you guys remember the story you know that they he says you know each one of us is going to build an altar then we're going to call upon our God to send down fire from heaven and so the prophets of Baal he lets them go first and there's 450 of them and they're dancing around this thing all day calling upon God and it's actually really funny at one point um, in the text it says that Elijah begins to kind of mock him and and it says you know maybe maybe your God and it says maybe your God is away is the way it reads in the English but in the Hebrew it's quite literally like Elijah saying maybe your God's going to the bathroom Maybe that's, maybe that's why he doesn't hear you. And so, which I just kind of like that Elijah had a little trash talk game, you know, going on for him. Anyway, but so Elijah's kind of talking some trash to him, you know, and he's, and he's like, you know, where, where's he at? And nothing happens. Eventually, Elijah builds his altar, douses it with water, calls upon God, and God sends down fire from heaven, consumes, consumes the altar, the water, licks up everything, the stones, everything, everything that's there. And Elijah calls the people to come back, um, uh, and serve and serve God. Now, right after that, though, so Elijah has just poured himself out, okay, spiritually, in kind of this big spiritual warfare confrontation. Right after that, though, it, which, is, which is funny, Elijah has no problem with the 450 prophets of Baal, but right after that, Jezebel threatens him. <laughs> and Jezebel said, as surely, you know, as your God lives, he, I'm, you're not going to be alive by this time tomorrow. I'm going to take your life. And Elijah freaks out, and he runs away um, to the mountain of God, and he hides himself there and then God kind of shows up to him and, and Elijah appeals to him and, and Elijah's a kind of having a pity party and I'll talk more about this after a little bit. But verse 3, this is what Elijah says. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets and have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. And he's just, he's, he's frustrated that after all that he's done that even still now he's on the run. And this is God's reply to him. Verse 4, but what, does God, what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God's response to Elijah's question about whether or not God has forsaken his people and he thinks he's the only one left is no, 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 Elijah. I've got 7,000 people that you don't know about. And notice how he words it here. He says, I have kept for myself. I have, not that I, I, God, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, look how Paul rolls this out. Again, continuing to talk about Israel, but this has direct implications for our life. Verse 5, so too at the present time, So just like there was back then in Elijah's day, just like there is now, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by what? Grace. Grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so Paul's answer here, and again, he's going to tease this out some more, and what he's essentially going to go on to say in the rest of, of Romans chapter 11 is God had a remnant back in Elijah's day, God has a remnant now, with, and he gives himself as an example, and then he's going to say in the same way, God is going to have a remnant in the future. God always has his people, but these people are chosen by grace. By grace. Does that make sense? So that's his, that's his argument here as to why God's word ultimately has not failed, to the nation of Israel, and ultimately why God's word will not fail to us. Because God will always keep those who belong to him. Now, so that's kind of the the context in theology. Now, let me just point out a couple things about why I believe this is unbelievably good news to us. okay, And why I believe it has very practical implications, and I hope I hope, gives you hope (laughs) this morning. Number one is that when we think that God is not doing anything, God is always doing far more than what we are aware of. Amen? When we think that God is not doing anything, God is always doing far more than what we are aware of. Again, this story that Paul speaks of in regards to Elijah. Elijah was a prophet. Not only was he a prophet, but he's kind of looked at as like the the quintessential, like the archetype of all the prophets in the Old Testament. When Jesus is on the Mount mount of Transfiguration during his life, you know, and that's spoken about in the Gospels, it says that he's transfigured and all of a sudden the the veil of his flesh is kind of pulled back and the disciples see him in his glory and they're covering their faces and they think that they're going to die. And Jesus is standing there speaking with Moses and speaking with Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God. And so if anybody had kind of, if you think kind of like, like access to what God was doing, and God told Elijah a lot of what he was doing. I mean, he told him to prophesy that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, and it didn't rain. Then he told him to prophesy again that it was gonna rain, and, and, it, and it rained. And it happened. And he told Elijah a lot of things, but even Elijah didn't know fully what God was doing. At one point in Elijah's life, Elijah was discouraged, he was distraught, a woman had threatened him. Come on, man, give me an amen, somebody. Okay, okay. just making sure you're still awake. And he was freaking out, and he thought that it was all over. And he says, God, I'm I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that's being faithful. I'm the only one that cares about your word. And God says, no, that's not true. That's not true. In fact, Elijah, I don't just have this guy or, or this guy or I've got five people over here or, or seven people here. I've got 7,000 people that I have reserved for myself. They belong to me. They have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so many times, guys, we get in this place where we're discouraged, and we think that God's not working, and we think that there's no way that our marriage can be fixed. We think that there's no way that our circumstances will ever change. And I'm telling you this morning that if you want to leave here with hope, fix your eyes on the risen Christ, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, who all authority in heaven on earth belongs to him. And he can do whatever he wants, whatever he wants, and he is the hope of the world. And our job as Christians, although this, you know, choosing an election and predestination, well, how does my will come into play, and what about my responsibility? It's all true, but here's what we need to wake up with every single day if we're going to embrace these weighty truths that are hard to wrap our minds around about the sovereignty of God and his bigness and how he ordains all things, is we wake up every day and we say, Jesus, I want to follow you today. I want to follow the sovereign Lord of the universe today. God, please give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. I want to go where you're going. I want to do what you're doing. Because when we do that, brothers and sisters, we walk in victory. Amen? And so do not please, please. This is, I, it, I'll be honest with you. Like this is, a, this is a weighty one for me. It makes me want to throw something. When Christians give these, these overly simplistic answers to the sovereignty of God, or they talk about the sovereignty of God as if it's not good news, guys, it's the best news. If God is not sovereign, if he's not on the throne, if he's not in control of all things, what? how in the world do you have any hope? But if he is... If he is over absolutely everything, not just here in Holmes County or or just in America, but over the whole earth and over the whole universe, if he is in charge of everything and he is our Lord and he is our Savior, guys, ultimately, if we are living for him and his purposes, we cannot fail. We cannot fail. But he calls us those that he dies for, those that he saves, he sends And the thing that I want you to get, and I'll come back to the text here in just a minute and point this out, the thing that I want us to understand is that, guys, because God is sovereign, if he has saved you, if you you sang a little bit ago and you have love in your heart for God, all I'm saying is that he's the one that has placed that love there. Because as we saw last week from Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, is that there's no man who seeks for God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. All have become wicked. There are none who seek him. And so, if you have a desire in your heart to seek Him, yeah, you might have just raised your hand or walked in the aisle or prayed to pray. That's great. That's fine. But what the Bible's teaching is that behind all of it, underneath all of it, God was at work to cause you to do that. And that is what grace is. And if He has opened your eyes to understand that, if He saved you, then listen to me He sends you. The gospel came to you, salvation came to you because it's also headed to somebody else through you. Do you understand? I'll try to calm down here. You, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Your life exists for him. And can I just, let, let me step back for just a minute. And this is, this is I understand that this is not a, <clears throat> this won't bring everything to rest in regards to the debate about God's sovereignty and all this stuff. This has gone on forever. And, um, and it's important we need to wrestle with it. But so, let, let, me, let me press this a little bit, okay? We, we think sometimes, God would never, God would never override my will. Really? Really? Do you have plans tomorrow? Well, I mean, I'm not saying anything special. How many of you know, like, you're going to work, you're going to school, you're dropping the kids off, you're, you, you have plans? Can I ask you a question? Could you die tonight? Yeah. Yeah. Would that not be God impugning upon your plans? We're all going to die someday, right? I guarantee for most of us, probably, probably, the day that we pass away and hopefully go to be with Jesus, if we've simply trusted Him, most of us are probably going to have stuff that was on our calendar to do the next day. God says, nope, that's it. And again, I, I know that, 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 might, that might sound silly, but I'm saying, yeah, it is silly. That we think that God just has no, like, he can't impose his will upon us. Yes, he does. All the time. Proverbs 21.1, okay, because again, this is all over the Bible. Proverbs 21.1, the heart of a king is like waters in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants. That's what it says. And the idea there, I love that it says kings because like kings are like the most powerful, kings have the most authority, kings have the most influence, kings have the most resources. And God says, I'll turn that wherever I want. God would never impose himself on my free will. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He's God. Thanks for the amen, Rick. I appreciate there was one there. I guys, this is good news. This is good news. Um, The misconception is that when we think of somebody that is sovereign in the human sense, when we think of a king, or we think of somebody in power that has all the authority, we're like, "Uh uh-oh, and usually, listen, there should be an "Uh uh-oh. Why? Because man is not good like God is. But the fact that he's sovereign and the fact that he's good, perfectly good, always loving, always just, merciful, gracious, kind, yet he will not let the wicked go unpunished. And again, that belongs to him, not myself and not you. But he's good. And he rules the universe with absolute power and authority and we have the privilege of following him again speaking of god's sovereignty just very quickly that i can pull this back to you i kind of went off on a rabbit trail there about how this should actually increase our uh our confidence and hopefulness in mission is if you'll just jump over a little later in chapter 11 again after paul has laid this out verse 11 of chapter 11 so i asked then Did they, being Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, though, through the trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. (laughs) Now, get this. This is crazy argumentation, but this is the way God rolls, okay? Verse 12, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? In other words, Paul, when he would go out, and you can read about this in the book of Acts, we don't have time to look at it, but he would go, and he would usually start, as he'd go city to city, he'd start in a synagogue. And he'd be preaching to the Jews, but they would reject it. And so then he, in several places he says, fine, you reject it, I'm going, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. So he goes to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, again, some of them reject it, but many of them receive it as well too. So because they reject it, now it's coming to the Gentiles. But now listen to Paul talks, verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Listen to what he says. He says, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make some of my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now, I don't know if you're following this. It's, it, again, it's a little bit, I'll admit, it's a little bit tricky to follow, we, but only because we don't think this way, not because it's not clear what he's saying. So Paul, in response to God's sovereignty in choosing an election, he, he goes, well, because here's the thing that always—the people always say, well, if God's sovereign, then I guess I don't need to preach the gospel. No, just the opposite. Because the sovereign God who has ordained the ends also has ordained the means. And the means that he has ordained is that we would preach the gospel. And Paul fully embraces this. He says, because the sovereign God is on the throne, I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to be louder than I've ever been and in some way stir them up to jealousy that God might save some. You see, see, so Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. That's coming in the next chapter. If we want to be changed, if we want to be transformed, we need to, it starts by thinking differently. And the way that we think differently is by thinking like God. And the way that we think by God, like, by, like God is by getting into this book. Okay. I don't even know what my points were where I started here. Anyway, God is far more active than what we realize. Secondly, here's another other thing I want to say. I'll try to wrap up here, but God is far more gracious than we would ever be. Again, we, all the misconceptions about his sovereignty. Number one is, if he's sovereign, then I don't need to preach the gospel. Not true. Paul gives us the exact opposite example. He preaches the gospel trusting that God uses that to bring people to salvation. The other thing, the misconception about uh, God's sovereignty is that we think that he's somehow stingy. And I've touched on this already. No, because God is not stingy in his grace we're stingy. He is generous. Go back to Elijah again. I've kind of touched on this already, but just to emphasize it, so you see where I'm getting this from. I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. Elijah, again, if you read the story, Elijah is, he, he's, he's kind of, a, he's essentially appealing to God to bring judgment on them. He's like, God, I'm the only one left. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about this? God says, no, 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 I've got 7,000 that are mine. I've shown grace to Listen to me. Elijah wants God to judge them. God is literally 7,000 times more gracious than Elijah was. You follow me? (laughs) Who's the stingy one? We are. Elijah, the prophet, who's like the best among us. He's stingy. God's not stingy. The reason I say that is, brothers and sisters, there is absolutely nobody, nobody that God cannot save. I don't care what the sin issue is. I don't care what they've done. I don't care how far that they have wandered. And the reason that I can say that with such confidence, and I hope that you can receive it in a way that brings hope, is because you would look at the sovereign God of the universe and his grace, not only to apostate Israel back in Elijah's day, but even as Paul's writing. We see this example in Paul. That Paul was not you know, trying to do the Lord's work. Paul was not, was not a seeker. He was seeking to destroy the church. Yet God had mercy on him. God is far more merciful than we ever give him credit for, or we could ever imagine. And I just wanna ask you this morning, in your life right now, let me bring this down, and say okay, well this is you know, a lot of theological stuff, why does this matter? Is there anybody in your life that you have lost hope about? Because God is sovereign and because he's gracious, brother, or sister, you have no right to lose hope. Let me ask you this, is the person that you've lost hope about you. You have no right to lose hope. All you have to do this morning, if the person you've lost hope about is you, here's all you have to do. Just trust him. That's it. Just trust him. Just trust him. Because the same Bible that says, and again, if you want me to perfectly reconcile this, I, I admit it that I can't, but here's what the Bible says. Just as much as it says, and I've tried to show you from this passage this morning, how God is sovereign and he chooses and he elects, and here's also what the Bible says, whosoever will may come. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved, for with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you will just call upon him this morning, he will save you. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works. So nobody can boast. Nobody. And so if you have somebody in your life this morning, that isn't you, if it is you, trust him. If it's not you, pray like crazy and know that the sovereign God wants to save them 7,000 times more than even you probably do because he's good. Amen. Worship team, you come up and we'll close. I, there's, there's so much um, I didn't get to this morning and I didn't know how far we were going to be able to get here, but let, let me say one other thing about the sovereignty of God that has helped me, and I would argue that it's, it's an illustration, okay? Um, and sometimes, again, I want to make sure that my illustrations are biblical, but but I believe that it is, as you look at the whole of Scripture, is one of the things that for a long time I would wrestle with passages like this, especially back in my 20s, I was working it, it took me years to work through this idea over and over again of the sovereignty of God and His sovereignty and my responsibility and election and choosing. How how does this all work together? And again, I don't think we can fully reconcile it till we get to heaven. But but one of the things that helped me, <clears throat> excuse me, early on, was that passage about the prodigal son, but also the passage in the Gospels where Jesus says that when one sinner repents, when one sinner repents, there's a party in heaven. (laughs) And that God rejoices when anybody trusts Him. And the reason that that helped me is when I was wrestling with God's sovereignty, I always thought of Him as like sitting back on His throne and just being kind of ambivalent or apathetic to, well, yeah, I got this all planned out, and so... Whatever, I'll see you guys later. And he's like off doing something else because he's sovereign. Right? Like he, He's the alpha, the omega. He marks out the end from the beginning. I was like, I don't, I don't like that. But as I began to think about those passages and how there's a party going on in, in heaven every time a sinner rejoices, I was like, well, how could that be? How could, how could God know everything that's going to happen and even cause it to happen and yet still rejoice when a sinner comes home? And then, I got married. And for me, I don't know about you, but I'm sure this is the case in most of your weddings. I, let me tell you something. For seven months, we were engaged. And for seven months, I knew the day we were gonna get married I knew the time we were going to get married. I knew what was going to be served after the meal. I knew what song me and the groomsmen were supposed to walk out with. I knew what song my wife was going to be walking that down to. I knew that there was going to be a bell choir in the balcony going, dun, dan, 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 dan like doing that, doing that whole thing. We would went through the vows. I knew the pastor was going to, like, I knew everything that was coming. I knew everything that was coming. But I'll tell you this, is that in that moment when they flung open the doors and I saw my wife to be, for the first time, there were tears coming down my face. And the fact that I knew that it was coming did not change my emotional response in that moment one bit. And brothers and sisters, in the same way today, and I especially say this here to you if you're here and you don't know that you're saved. You don't know Christ as your Savior. You have no confidence of where you'll spend eternity. I'm telling you, although I know this is some heavy stuff, but listen to me, the sovereign God of the universe this morning, even though he knows it's coming, he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you, and he loves you. And He is not off in the corner just kind of letting this whole thing just run amok because he's planned everything out. He loves you, and he cares for you deeply. And my encouragement, my exhortation to you this morning is, again, just trust him. Just trust him. Father, I just, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for your justice. I thank you for your sovereignty. I thank you that you're over all things. Lord Jesus, would you please, would you please just help us to trust you this morning? you please just help us to trust you. Salvation belongs to you, almighty God. And I thank you, Lord, just for myself. I thank you that you saved me. I did not deserve it at all. And it is all of you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you're helping, serve-